Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. This episode is part of our Real Estate Forum series. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. A reminder uh, to stay tuned at the end of this interview while Adam and I will do our after show and digest the conversation we're about to have. Our guest today is Rosa Lupo, who is a lawyer at Gowling's WLG. Rosa, thanks for joining today. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Adam, for having me. I, I, I said lawyer. Is it partner or is that, is that an adequate? Uh, well, I still am a lawyer. Yes, okay. for sure. What's the best <laughs> but, title? Yeah. yeah p- partner is, uh, yeah, I am a partner there uh, now. Yes. Well, so I apologize for maybe getting that wrong, but Rosa. <laughs> We're not yeah. like doctors. You don't yeah. have to call us partner <laughs> or not. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, good. Well, I mean, Rosa, let's let's just start with kind of your background. You know, obviously a lawyer, as we've clearly identified, but how'd you kind of end up in the law, practicing law and what's your, what is your sort of focus in real estate? Yeah, thank you. So I've been a partner in uh, Gowling WLG's commercial real estate group. I'm also uh, the head of our Waterloo office business department, business law department. And I'll tell you a little bit maybe about the firm and what we're about. Gowling WLG, it's an international law firm. We have over 1,400 professionals globally. There's approximately 700 professionals in Canada, and we have seven offices across Canada. Internationally, we have another 700 professionals. And they have offices in 18 cities, 10 countries on three continents. Gowling WLG is a bit different than a lot of the large international law firms. We have a bit of a regional focus that other law firms do not. So in addition to having offices in major centers like Toronto, Ottawa, London, UK, we also have offices in Waterloo, which is where I'm located, and in Birmingham and in Monaco. And we've seen some value add in having those local regional offices in addition to the major centers. There's cost savings to our clients. We're able to service certain areas of the law at a lower cost savings. And our clients like that. And they like locally that in Waterloo, we have boots on the ground and I can meet with you in person. But if you need to know how to get your IP protected in China, I can connect with our China office and make that happen. So, uh, so it allows for a beautiful marriage between, you know, large national, international firm and some local offices that have local connections. Anybody who doesn't know where Waterloo is, is probably not from Ontario, but we do have listeners outside of this uh, part of the country. So just for quick context, for anybody who's not from this part of uh, the country, Waterloo is about an hour outside of Toronto. Uh, it's been experiencing a really significant, uh, growth or or boom cycle for for quite a while. And it also boasts Aaron Cameron as an alumnus from his uh, university days. There's a few connections to that area. Well, and I I know, Rosa, I mean, you're from the region, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's really sort of a tri-city area, right? It's KW, Kitchener-Waterloo, and Cambridge. It's all kind of one continuous city, which makes it a really large sort of metropolitan area if you consider all three as one. I think that it's about over it's about over five hundred thousand in population between those three areas, and it is one continuous city. You don't know when you've crossed from Waterloo to Kitchener to Cambridge. We actually have partners in our office who the front of their house they get a property tax bill for the front of the house, 
from Waterloo and they get a property tax bill from the city of Kitchener for their backyard. Uh, so actually it is, uh, it is a continuum. You don't know you're switching. So it's a very big population. And we, yes, Adam, we are still feeling the effects of Aaron having been here in his, uh, in his youth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I leave a trail of destruction wherever I go. Yeah, for sure. So locally, we also have a very strong commercial real estate practice in our office in Waterloo. And we're known for that globally. Our uh, London, UK and Birmingham office have a very strong real estate practice. We act for developers in Spain, in Portugal, in Germany. And that's not just in our Birmingham office. It's funny how these things happen. But uh, I recently acted for a company out of Spain, a major developer in Spain who bought a property in Toronto. I did not get an invite at the end of the deal to Spain to spend some time with them. I was trying. I was <laughs> trying hard. But, you know, so it, the global aspect of the firm really benefits our clients. Well, and Rosa, maybe just to go backwards to, you know, just your, your career then. So as you end up at Gowling, but what was the path? End up, why law? Why real estate? You know, how did you end up now being sort of the head of the Waterloo office? I'd love to say I was strategic in it all, but I can't. I'd be lying. So I've been in practice now for over 22 years. I've mostly spent all of my time at Gowling WLG. I'm a lifer, uh, but I did. I articled at Gowling before there were iPhones and Blackberries um, and all of those, that technology available. I left for a few years. I did leave Gowling for a few years. We call those the dark ages. And then I saw the light and I returned and I've been there ever since. So I have the enviable position of having been through my articles, associate, partner, all at Gowling in the Waterloo office. Why did I get into the law? Most people, when they're asked this question, say, because I wanted to help people, but I'm, I'm not that generous. My parents were immigrants from Italy. They were very focused on education. They wanted a better life for their children. I grew up in the 80s. I loved LA law. I watched it all the time. I am a Libra, so I'm very balanced. And I grew up to be a really strong arguer. And you have to be because every Friday night I had to convince my immigrant parents that it's okay. I can go out Friday with my friends and no, I'm not doing drugs. So that took me a lot of effort and built up my arguing skills. And so uh, why not law when it came to picking a career? So that's kind of how I ended up in as being a lawyer. The dream of yelling, you can't handle the truth in a, in a courtroom. Like, I can see the appeal for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's, uh, let's zero in a little bit here. I mean, because uh, obviously this is you know, uh, commercial real estate and you work with uh, a lot of developers. And I know there's a lot of developers you know, listening now. So let's, let's talk about you know, some of the structuring you do, some of the work you do with developers to you know, protect their interests in deals. Because I know, uh, as we mentioned uh, at the start here, out in your neck of the woods, there's a, a lot of active cranes right now. Yeah, there, there's a lot out in the uh, region of Waterloo. It is definitely a booming, growing uh, metropolis. We just recently, I say recently, but it's probably about as I get older, time condenses, but it is likely about three to five years ago, but we did get a light rail transit. And so what that uh, translated into in this region is a bunch of development going up along that light rail transit. And the hope is that, you know, at some point, I guess people live in the condos, they will have um, condo living 
a lot of high rises, a lot of mixed use buildings have also gone up along the LRT, you know, condos up top, second level is offices and basement uh, ground level being retail and restaurants. And so you live, work and play, we're all in the same place and you're on the train and you don't have a car. So I think that was the dream that's been really booming in this region. There's been a lot of condo developments. There is right now in the downtown Kitchener core, which is where our office is actually located. So it's the one I know the best because I visit, but there are like, you know, at least five high rise cranes right now. Uh, Last time I was at the office last week working on projects. So it is booming. And so my work dealing with developers is the full gamut. So I act for developers when they're going to buy vacant land or when they're going to amass a bunch of different properties and purchase several properties that are all adjacent to one another in order to amass them into one big development. I also help them when they're going to register easements with the utilities or an adjoining landowner. I help them with drafting their shared facility agreements. I will also assist when it comes to financing the project and then registering the actual plan of subdivision or registering the condo plan. I will assist my um, developer clients with that as well. And then we also act for them when they sell the individual units to homeowners. That's kind of the gamut of what I do with developers. It's soup to nuts. It's start to finish. And I I think we're going to spend a bunch of time on that component of your business because I think it's an interesting, I don't want to say niche, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting piece of just the condo development, condo delivery, uh, unit delivery process uh, that I think gets kind of overlooked at times. You know, when Adam and I do these interviews with, you know, developers, we're not necessarily talking about the nuances of delivering units and what that looks like and and the risks associated. You know, Rosa, just quickly before we get there, you know, you do a lot of volunteer work and and, and and sit on different boards of charities and such, many of which are sort of focused with, with women's leadership just women in in law, maybe just talk about your passion for that and and what that means to you. Sure. Thanks, Aaron. It's interesting. There are lots of women in law. We still, our statistics are still not great when uh, it seems that we lose women at every stage of the process. So some statistics, when you're graduating from law school, it's about 60, 40 women to men. There's more women who graduate law school than men, as a matter of fact. Then when they article, you're at about 50-50. As associates, we're about 50-50. And then it's as soon as you start to get into the partner track that things start to waver and the numbers start to not be as great. So once you get into, uh, there's two levels of partners at most large firms. There's an income partner and then an equity partner. An income partner is hasn't actually bought into the firm and doesn't participate in the profits of the firm. They're more of a fixed income that they make. And so at income partner level, you know, we are at about 40% women to 60% men. And then by the time you get to equity partner, we're probably under about 30% of women versus men. So at every stage of your career, we seem to lose a few women. And the reasons are pretty various. The reasons are we lose a lot of women in in private practice to going in-house. We lose a a lot of women to deciding that family is is first and being uh, spending time with their families and not choosing the career. It's a very, being a lawyer is a very demanding career. It is, you know, uh, every week is a 60 to 70 hour week. And so you, it's hard to balance work and life uh, and, and being in the law. 
I jokingly tell our uh, management sometimes they say, what can we do to get more women through the process? And I, I joke, but I, I'm actually, there's a truth to it. I think we should start a dating service. I think we should start a dating service for these women so at, they can marry men or other women that will allow their career to be front and center. So I think if we did that, we'd have a lot more women in the law by the time you got to equity partner we'd have to pre-screen the mates and see if they're willing to let their career take a second uh, second fiddle. I joke about that, but that that's really been my career track. My husband is very supportive. He's always put my career first. And as a family, it was a decision that we made and discussed. And I'm talking, we discussed it when we were dating and I was going to go to law school. So we were dating and I was applying to law school. And I knew it was demanding. I had shadowed a couple of lawyers before I decided to go. And we talked about it. I said, well, who's going to take the kids to the games? Like, to, And I'm Italian, so it was a soccer game. It wasn't a baseball game. So, you know, who's going to take the kids to the, to the soccer game? And who's going to take the kids to their whatever they have to do? And he kind of looked at me and said, well, where the hell am I? Uh, and I thought, yeah, where are you? Yeah, you're taking the kids. So, so we decided very early on that my career was going to take precedent and and that's what he's done. And so he's he's a teacher. He still works outside of the home, but he looks after the family so that I can focus on the career. And, and that's what's brought me to this level of my career, being an equity partner and being in management and being able to commit all of that time. And without his support, I wouldn't have made it to that point. So I think it is a tricky balancing act. Yeah, and I totally do understand the uh, if you're having a high demand career in the household, it is really a team effort to uh, to get it there. There's something that Aaron and I have talked about before, and it's probably a good chance to ask you about it. You mentioned, of course, the drop off rate in, in women at every stage of the process and you know where they might end up. But we've noticed a lot of people when you talk to them, and we talk to a lot of people, obviously, you know, in, in this podcast and in our job roles, is on the equity side of real estate or the developers. A lot of people have law degrees who are you know, practicing just, just real, real estate ownership or asset management or, or something in that field. So what do you think creates that bridge from having a law degree, uh, a couple of years in the law or, or whatever it is that they decided to switch tracks and then end up on, uh, on the other side of, uh, of real estate? I think as a lawyer, we bring a lot to the table in that aspect because in a real estate business, you, you need to understand the land. You need to understand the dirt. So if somebody has practiced for a couple of years and understands the risks, the benefits, the abilities of what they can do, you know, a lawyer comes to the table knowing that, well, if I buy this larger parcel, okay, right now there's just an eightplex apartment on it or something, right? But look, there's all this vacant land and they've got, you know, 18 parking spaces and I could actually take that and expand out the building and I know I can get a minor variance and I know I can change zoning and I can do all those things and end up with a bigger complex and less parking space, which actually brings more money in. I think they bring that to the table, being able to think outside that box and know that they can do those things. And our analytic skills are pretty bang on. We, you know, we can look at something and foresee the future what ifs, because that's what we do for a living. And so having that experience in our background, I think helps on the developer side and then going in-house. And I think the other thing is that maybe they initially leave because they think there's more of a work-life balance. I think they'd find they, it may not be when you get into that industry because it is a grind as well. But that, but that might be the initial attraction. I would, I, would, I would also add, at least 
you correct me if I'm wrong, but just understanding ownership structures, tax structures, benefits of GPs and LPs and, and trusts, and you can get really complicated you know, ownership structures for, for tax benefits that I think is a nuance that you really can only learn through education. It's tough to pick that up on the fly, right? And that you get that with a law degree, right? Absolutely. You, you, you get, well, you get it with a law degree, you definitely get it in practice. Cause I got to say a lot of the stuff in the law degree is focused on litigation and not on the corporate side, but for sure in practice, you get a lot of that and you understand those different structures and you get what happens with an LP that the partners can actually run the day-to-day business. You get the fact of who the GP is, the general partner, you understand that the GP represents the interest of the LP, but that it's a separate entity and contracts on its own too and can. So you understand all those nuances, which most people don't. I mean, down to, down to a lot of our clients. I mean, I have very sophisticated clients who are developing, you know, 700 unit lots and of, of, uh, of homes. So these are not people who are unintelligent but they don't know how to sign their documents because I have to explain to them, no, no, the GP signs for and on behalf of the LP, right? Because they're not used, they just don't get it, right? Whereas we bring that all to the table. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate that. Wish I could go back, but I'm too old now for any more education, I think. Um, <laughs> let's, let's transition a little bit. Let's talk about Tarion, you know, because I and that's I think where we're going to focus a lot of our of our attention now, and just the nuances between unit purchasers. We're talking about condo development, unit purchaser, Tarion, and the developer, and maybe just define Tarion or explain what that is first for those that may be unfamiliar. Sure. So Tarion is actually it's called the Tarion New Home Warranty Plan, and it was created by the government of Ontario. It's been around for a long time. It's created in 1976, as a matter of fact. It recently changed its name to Tarion. It used to be called the Ontario New Home Warranty. And the reason it was created was to protect home purchasers for their new homes. It afforded to purchasers a certain level of protection. So some of the protection that it provides is that when you buy a new home, whether it be a condo or a freehold, you would actually complete a pre-delivery inspection of the home immediately prior to closing. So you would go in and, and you would actually have a sheet that Tarion has as a standard form and mark down any deficiencies that you note, and that gets filed with Tarion. And then the builder developer has to fix all those deficiencies and they have one year to do so. It also provides to homeowners deposit protection. So anybody who's bought a no, new home knows that along the way, you're paying a lot of deposits to the builder slash developer along the way. There's lots of interim deposits. And it provides protection in the event that the developer were to go bankrupt. It covers up up to a certain level of deposits, monetary amount. So it also provides delayed closing compensation. So if your closing date gets extended and gets extended beyond your outside date, then it requires that developers pay a certain amount of compensation per day. So when you buy a new home, as part of your agreement of purchase and sale, there will be a document that's called the critical dates document. And it sets out what date the builder expects the home to be completed, how long they have to delay it beyond that date, if it's a freehold home, and an outside closing date. And builders and developers cannot extend beyond the outside closing date without coming to the homeowner first and getting their consent and giving them the option to actually terminate the contract. If it is a condo, the critical dates also include a date for occupancy. 
and a date for closing on the condo because you occupy first for a period of time. And then eventually when the plan of condominium gets registered, then you actually close and own the condo. So from the period that you occupy to the period that you close, you're almost kind of renting the condo. You don't actually own it at that point. And then it also, like the last thing that Terion provides is warranties on the home itself. They provide a certain level of warranties for the first year uh, of protection. And that's kind of basic protection that the house is built in accordance with bylaws and in a good workmanlike manner. And they also provide two years of protection on water damage and foundation issues. And then they provide seven years of protection on structural defects. So that's kind of a, in a nutshell, what what your Terion new home warranty gives you and, and how it protects home buyers. So can you share some of the, the messier examples you've seen where you know use of a Terion guarantee uh, got involved? I haven't really seen too many on the developer side. They don't normally call me because they, they kind of deal with that with themselves. But what we have, what we did have, so March of 2020 hit and COVID hit. And we had, our phones were ringing off the hook from all sorts of clients saying, essentially, what do we do? The interesting part was for most lawyers, and they won't tell you this, nobody will tell you this, but for most lawyers, the answer was, oh my Lord, I'm not sure. Because we haven't been through a pandemic yet, right? You know, lawyers, the way lawyers typically work is when a client calls and says, what do I do in this scenario? We have a whole slew of, we've either experienced it ourselves, Or we have a whole slew of case law and court decisions that tell us how we should tell our client to act that will be in compliance with what the courts have decided. There were no court decisions on COVID-19 or a pandemic or a global pandemic. And so a lot of our clients called us saying, what do I do with employees? What do I do with my office? And we were figuring that out ourselves. Now, we were the best equipped to try to give some advice and we did the best that we could. And I think we helped a lot of clients through some tough spots. But one of the calls that we got from developers, a a lot of our developer clients, was what do I do about closing dates? So if you'll recall, in March 2020, everything was shut down, including construction, residential construction, commercial construction, everybody was shut down. Everybody had to go home. As a developer, they're working towards these critical dates of when there's either going to be occupancy on a condo or there's going to be closing on the freehold. And now they couldn't finish the construction. And they also had this critical dates list that Terry on New Home Warranty requires you to have, which says, here's the date you're closing. Here's how long I get to extend it for. And nobody knew what was going to happen or how long this delay was going to occur. And so when we got these calls, we did look into it for our clients. And essentially, Terry on New Home Warranty did provide a methodology for dealing with this. You could imagine that there would be other things that developers would have experienced in the past, not a global pandemic, but something like a strike or a shortage of supplies. And so they do have a method of dealing with it. And it's really an unavoidable delay is really what they call it. And so the way that we uh, walked our clients through this is that they had to take very detailed steps in order to comply with Terion, but there was a method to get through. And so... Once they knew that COVID was going to have an unavoidable delay on their construction, on their project, they had to send a notice to the homeowners and they had to tell them, hey, there's been an unavoidable delay. Typically, when you send this 
unavoidable delay as a builder developer, you're supposed to include why it's an unavoidable delay, what the delay is, and when you expect that you'll be able to deliver and how much time it's going to last for. Nobody knew how long it was going to last for. I mean, when it started March 2020, I thought I was going to have an extended March break with my kids for two weeks and be back. And that is not how that turned out. Here we are in like, you know, fall of 2021, and we're still kind of half on shutdown and half in and half out. So there's still a method for dealing with that as well. They have the ability to tell homeowners that it's an unavoidable delay and it's impossible at this point in time to estimate the length of time for the unavoidable delay. So once they've given that notice to the homeowners, then they're in the good and they can just keep it status quo. The second piece that they have to remember to do as developers is then to send what they call the second notice. So the second notice is has to be sent as soon as they are able to assess that the unavoidable delay is ended. And now what is the date that they're expecting everything to be pushed off of? So how long has the delay lasted? And now what is the date of occupancy? What is the date of closing? And so the second notice has to be sent as soon as their critical dates can be reset, as soon as they know. So during March of 2020, nobody knew when it was going to start. They sent the unavoidable delay notice to their purchasers. Everything was held in status quo. And then when people knew that they were back at work, you recall, I think we ended up back in construction around June of 2020. Then they had the ability to say, now we know that we're in June of 2020. It doesn't mean that right at June, they had to send a new the second notice. They could take some time. It's called a stub period. They could take some time to figure out how much am I going to have to spend an extra time in order to catch up. So because there would be a backlog, there'd be a backlog of equipment, there'd be a backlog of materials, there'd be a backlog of closings. They knew all of that, so they could take some time to assess that. And that time, plus the unavoidable delay period, they were able to send that notice to, to purchasers and say, well, here's your new closing date and here's your new occupancy date. And this is now when all of this is going to occur. And it kind of, it was kind of like a freeze period for builders. But none of them, a lot of them had never been through it before because they didn't know how to send these notices and they are very prescriptive in their method of how you have to send them and when. And so I think we, we helped a lot of clients through that and breathing a sigh of relief to move on. Things are a little better now. Residential construction has not been shut down since last year, even through the summer of 2020, and even through further shutdowns in the fall last year and earlier in January, February, March of 2021, residential real estate has been able to continue. And the way that it's been able to continue is the government saw through the pandemonium it was creating by shutting down residential real estate because people need homes. And if they bought this home, this new build, and sold their existing home, the sale of resale homes was still occurring. So they were leaving people in the lurch with nowhere to go. And so now they've said, builders, if you've pulled a building permit already and you've started construction, you're not shut down and you can continue to construct even through COVID. 
If you haven't pulled a building permit yet, which means you haven't really started construction, so you've got to be at least two years out of your date, then you can't continue that work. And so that's how they've kind of divvied that up so that purchasers are not really put out of their homes. Developers can continue to construct the homes for their purchasers, but yet they're keeping people safe because they've shut down some of the construction that's occurring. I want to follow down this process because I, I find this really fascinating because I have some I have some follow-up questions to what you're talking about. But I, I want to go back one step, sorry, just quickly because I, I think it's maybe material to this conversation. Tarion is a provincial body, correct? Like yes. uh, run run by the by the province in some form or fashion. Yes. Um, yeah, it's right, yeah. And they're more or less an insurance company. I know they call them warranties, but it's more or less insurance. Who pays the premiums? Like how does the funding work? I'm assuming there's you know, sort of consistent payouts, you know, based on whatever the scenarios are, if a developer can't deliver or, you know, whatever the, the, the problem is. So are there fees attached to all this stuff? And is that developer or the purchasers paying that? Like, how does the dollars and cents kind of work through Tarion? Yeah, so that's a good question because it's kind of twofold. So yes, the Tarion does not charge the homeowners. Tarion charges the builder. There is a registration fee when you're a builder. You pay an overarching registration fee to be registered with Tarion as a builder. And then there is a per unit cost that gets paid by the developer, which every home or every unit, if it's a condo within a development, when they're going to go and build a large project. So Tarion doesn't charge the homeowner, but most developers do pass along that cost uh, as part of an adjustment in their agreement of purchase and sale, or they include it in the price that they, when they've priced the home. So ultimately the homeowner pays, but it's not a charge by the government to a homeowner. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, and we're familiar with that sort of pass through effect that that occurs Mm -hmm. in lots of different aspects of, of our business. Before we get back to kind of the conversation about just the delays and the impact of COVID and maybe some other you know, scenarios that we can think of, can you opt out? Like, what kind of control does a developer or purchaser have to say, you know what, like, just X out all the Terry on stuff in my contract. I don't, I don't need it. I don't want it. I don't want to pay for it. Like, is there leniency or is, is it just more like, no, no, no. If you're going to build a condo unit or, or a house for sale, it must be covered by Terry on or must have Terry on provisions in the contract. Yeah, for sure, the builder cannot opt out. So the builder can't choose to not be registered under Tarion. They are legally required for any new home. Can the actual, it depends on the level of the home. So if you are buying a custom home, and let's say, you know, you're building a $2 million, $3 million custom home with a custom home builder, the two parties in that situation can opt out of carry on they can decide not mutually like mutually agreed to right right and and it's got to really be driven by the homeowner right and the only reason that they would allow that is because any coverage that terry has because it has maximums it has monetary maximums is not going to cover the two three million dollar home it's not going to cover that price it has and even on the deposits it's a maximum of twenty thousand well the deposits on the three million dollar home are going to be way more than twenty thousand dollars and so the homeowner can opt out in that instance. I have acted for homeowners that have done custom builds because we have a lot of you know wealthy corporate clients who are doing custom builds. And I don't advise them to opt out, even though they don't get the maximum coverage. What Tarion assists with is the fact that it makes sure that 
it's built in accordance with the Ontario building code. And so why would you do that on a $3 million custom home? Why would you say, yeah, I don't care about that. Let's move on. So it still creates a level of uh, responsibility and accountability for the home builder. And so I still tell my clients that they should require it. So the Notarian guarantee, is it, uh, is it completely one-sided or is there any protection for builders from some of the, you know, the pitfalls they can run into in a uh, development project? Yeah, there isn't really protection for the builders, developers, and Terry Ontarian's focus is for the homeowners and the purchasers. And so they don't uh, necessarily have any protection for builders for things such as increased costs or cost overruns. That's all at the builder's risk. They do work very closely with builders and developers. I don't want to make them sound like ogres or anything like that. They definitely work with developers. They work with them through these issues. And if a homeowner has a claim, they work with the developer and the homeowner to get it resolved. They're kind of like an intermediary mediator in that situation. So we, we kind of went down this a little bit previously. We were talking about you know, the impacts of COVID and the, you know, the, the ability for the developers to effectively amend those sort of critical delivery dates as a result of something that was completely out of their control. And as you kind of described it, there's sort of a, a very specific way that they have to go about that. In the, let's say in that sense, I mean, this, this is maybe just, just quickly, if I'm a home buyer or, or whatever, the purchaser, and I say, you know what, like, I don't really, I don't really care, like, you know, if COVID or not, I wanted my house a year and a half ago, I'm in a terrible situation, you know, and I can't afford to wait another year and a half. So I want out. Am I allowed to do that? Or as a result of just the way that this, the, this it's structured through Tarion, if the developer does what they're supposed to do in the eyes of the law, I guess, or the eyes of Tarion for, for that matter, the purchaser is still bound by that contract and loses their deposit. Yeah, so you can't unilaterally, the purchaser can't unilaterally get out of the contract so long as the time period that we're within is still before the outside closing date. So you remember I said that there's an expected closing date. Mm -hmm. And if you've missed that one, but you still haven't gone beyond the outside closing date, then the purchaser cannot unilaterally terminate that contract. If they walk away, they are in breach of the contract and they may or may not lose their deposit. If they are beyond the outside closing date, though, that's when then the developer has to go back and get consent from the purchasers and they have the option at that point to terminate. Now, that all sounds like it's really pro-purchaser, but, but it's usually not because usually that outside date is probably two plus years past the initial intended closing date. And the initial intended closing date, as anybody knows who goes and buys a new home, is usually about a year and a half to two years from the date you put your first deposit down. So that's like four years out by the time you're at the point where the purchaser can walk away. So there's there's a big cushion. There's a big cushion there. It's for, a big for, cushion. For yeah, yeah. So then outside of catastrophic global pandemics that moved everybody's timelines in a significant way, what else have you seen that enacted where they could uh, justifiably move dates because there been such a significant impact to you know, the building industry? Well, I mean, strikes is one thing. You know, there, there were uh, years ago, you know, there was a um, electrical workers strike. And so developers have to have the union in in order to wire the homes. And so when there's an, a strike across any of the trades, that will often delay closing dates and delay delivery dates. The beauty uh, a bit 
for the developer with most of those unavoidable delays, they're not going to affect their business because at the end of the day, likely all other developers are facing the same unavoidable delay. If it's only one builder who's facing that unavoidable delay, by its name, it wasn't unavoidable because all these other developers (laughs) were able to avoid it. So the beauty of that is that it's not going to affect your ability to close deals. It's not going to affect your ability to attract purchasers. It's not something specific to you. It has to be something that is across the board. Then maybe Rosa, like on that same vein, I guess, like, you know, so we've talked about time and anybody that's listened to these you know, podcasts before or, or familiar with development, time and it has a major impact on costs and then your trades and your, and your, your, your inputs, right? Like that also has a major impact on your costs. So time we've covered, right? But what about major, major changes in the costs? And, and then we've, I think we've, we've, we all have heard stories where whether you're buying a condo or a, or a freehold where the developers, you know, going way above what they anticipated in their pro forma and they kind of show up and say, listen, you know, we're all in this together. You got to increase the purchase price in order for to make it achievable for us to actually finish this project. Either that scenario, other scenarios, what is the implications of your rising cost? And how does Tarion kind of play a part in that? Yeah, so Tarion doesn't play a part in that, but for sure, I think what developers are going to face in 2021 and going forward is this issue of costs. So it's very true, Aaron, that that is the next hurdle to, to overcome. The reality is, is that for most of these developers, the cost of lumber, the cost of steel, that's all gone through the roof. And we don't know where the top necessarily is yet. And so for a developer who's, beginning a project right now that might close in two years, they have to price it now. So for them to go to market and price and sell the individual units, they have to price it. And in order for them to price it, they would generally have a history of the cost of lumber and the cost of steel. And they would have an idea with all of their institutional knowledge of how much they'd need for that for each house and be able to calculate a price. But those commodities, the price is changing on a daily basis, and it has been for the past six months and are going quite high. What we've been seeing a little bit in the States is that in the U.S., they have actually been selling more like as built for homes and saying that the cost will be whatever it happens to be for when we actually build the home. Now, that hasn't really flown in Canada. And and the difference is that in the States, that's always been the way they've done residential. They go to market, they have expressions of interest, they have actual agreements that are on an as-built basis, and they don't have a price. But that's not been the, the way things have run in Canada. So in Canada, we've always had a price in order to come up with a contract. We've always had a price on residential new builds. And so it puts developers in a really tight spot because they've priced it. And over the next six months, because of COVID, the price of these commodities can go through the roof and they can't really adjust for that. So it is a risk that some of our developers are grappling with. Some developers have decided in their pricing and in their fee schedule, they will say that the price of lumber and the price of steel is X right now. And if it goes up above Y, because they have a slush there, they have a little bit of a swing. If it goes above Y, you will pay the increased cost. Now, in order to do that with Tarion, because Tarion requires you to disclose to your purchasers every additional cost above the purchase price, it has to be in a list and it has to be brought to their attention. And 
And so I don't know how that's going to go in the marketplace when they actually go to sell. And if purchasers are going to accept that, we have a shortage of homes right now in Ontario anyways, where there's a shortage of home and the housing market's really hot. And so maybe purchasers will accept that. Maybe that'll just blow up a particular development and they won't sell the number of units that they need to sell. And that still is to be seen on on how that's going to play out in the marketplace. Uh, Rosa, I know we've probably talked all day about this and I'm sure that gets a lot deeper and more complicated what we've talked about today. But you've done a great job explaining it to uh, simple lay people like, uh, like Aaron and myself. But I know when these situations do arise, that's when the, you know, the lawyer heavy hitters need to step in. But it was, for, for me, it was great. I mean, you know, I'm sure Eric can, can uh, comment on this too. But we know what Terry is in terms of its role in the marketplace. But you know, we've never done too much of a deep dive. Because the first time I talked about the show, I thought it was super interesting. And uh, anybody else that's kind of in the industry, not super hands-on development, that probably has a better understanding on as well. So thank you a lot for your time today, Rosa. Well, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Yeah, it was great. I appreciate it, Rosa. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Aaron and I discussed the conversation that just took place. So for this one, Aaron, I got to ask you, how much exposure have you had to Terry on in your career? Very little, other than just a general appreciation of its purpose to protect the condo purchasers, but basically nothing other than that. Yeah. I always do enjoy episodes like this where we get into a topic that you and I are not spending all day in our working lives focusing on anyway. It is nice to kind of explore new avenues. I was the same as you. I mean, you'll work on condo projects and aware of Tarion and know that it's there, but I've not done a real deep dive on it. And especially interesting too, of course, to get legal opinion on it. Well, maybe the next thing we should do is get a developer's opinion, <laughs> but I did appreciate the succinctness of a legal opinion on all of this. And Rosa, clearly an expert in it. It was just fascinating just to hear her angle. My head's still kind of spinning, just kind of wrapping around just the implications of some of the stuff that she was talking about, but great conversation. Smart lady, for sure. Yeah. One other trend we spoke about her briefly in the episode was you know disillusioned lawyers ending up in real estate. We've had a number of people on this show that when we do their backstory, starts out with, yeah, I was a lawyer. And then then it follows something there that obviously led their path to real estate, not practicing on the legal side. Maybe there's a very good reason for it, but it does seem to be a common trend. Well, good communicators understand complex problems. I mean, it makes sense. Law is not for everybody, obviously. I'm not surprised, but I mean, there's still a ton of lawyers. You and I have come across five or 10 lawyers that have turned into real estate. There are tens of thousands of lawyers still out there that stay in the profession. So it can't be everybody. <laughs> yeah, I was not disparaging the profession as a whole, obviously. <laughs> Many people do end up in it. And then I guess the other question we have for you, given that you spent time out in the neck of the woods that Rosa is from, you would have been living out in the Tri-City area how many years ago? 2002 to 2007. Okay. And when you drive through there now, how different is it? I mean, I know there's been a lot of development throughout that area. Is it jarring? Is it startling? Do you notice the difference? Yeah. Do you really see oh, the way the yeah. city's evolved? I can't remember if I ever told this story on the podcast before, but I had a very brief employment opportunity doing power washing of sidewalks in downtown Kitchener in the middle of the night. And I was just a summer student. I was a student at university living on campus. I think it was between like second and third year, third and fourth year. And it was well-paying. I can't even remember. It was like 20 something bucks an hour, which was really good back then. But everything else was like 12 or 13, maybe. 
but it was like show up at 7 p.m., jump in a car, jump in a big truck that's full of water and power hoses, and then drive to downtown Kitchener and power wash the sidewalks as a contract with the city of Kitchener. You do that all night long, get back to the shop at 6 a.m. and stumble home and go to sleep and sleep all day. I lasted a month. Like I'm pretty proud of myself for even lasting four weeks. But point of the story is we'd roll up to downtown Kitchener you know, at 10 o'clock at night and spend the entire night with these big giant, they're not hoses, they're like guns that spray water that could like cut your leg off if you did it wrong, washing the sidewalks and the stuff that would see, right? Like just really, really sort of, I don't want to be negative, but just characters that you didn't really want to come across regularly doing stuff at two, three, four o'clock in the morning in downtown Kitchener. And that was kind of the environment back then. And I think now, if I was doing it at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, whatever, there'd be people on sidewalks coming out of restaurants and enjoying themselves eating ice cream. It was a ghost town 20 years ago. And now the vibe downtown is just awesome. It's just totally revitalized. And it's continuing to do that. I know the development pipeline out there will continue. So even people that are seeing it now, if you go back 10 years from now, it's going to be yet another massive shift emblematic of the entire region where everything's just being developed, built, and improved. It's good to see. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, stay cool. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.